well, this is probably going to date me too, about like Pastor Brody's 30 years, but it'll probably date some of you as well. But how many of you remember the O.J. Simpson trial? Do you remember seeing it on TV? Yeah? It was billed as the trial of the century. Countless hours of media was spent reporting on the case. I don't know uh, who, who's, who's the, the winner as far as the number of hours, how many hours they spend on Donald Trump or on the O.J. Simpson trial, but countless hours. Court proceedings were broadcast all over the world. And, you know, the case was about a famous football player who murdered his wife and boyfriend and then tried unsuccessfully to cover it up. And it was filled with this sideshow drama that that ran the, the gamut from the dream team of lawyers, accusations of, of race, and then you remember the fateful glove. Everyone remembers Johnny Cochran's line, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. And while that is a pithy little saying, it, it probably was the line that got O.J. Simpson off. And that's exactly what the, what the jury did. Even though there were mounds of evidence against him, and everyone could see that he was guilty. He later lost a, a civil case and walked free until uh, he got arrested for some uh, sports paraphernalia. I couldn't think of the of the right of the right word. It was a it was a, a gross miscalculation of judgment. I think most people would say a guilty man declared innocent. Well, in Mark chapter 3, there's an even more significant miscalculation of judgment. Only this time, it was about an innocent man who is declared guilty. And it's not a person who's accused of committing a crime, but a conclusion drawn by the family and a group of religious leaders about Jesus and His work. And what's fascinating about this story, is in the first, the first scene... It's only recorded in Mark's Gospel, nowhere else in the Gospel. So that always piques my interest. And it begins with a scene where Jesus' family comes from Nazareth to take Him by force because they conclude that He's gone out of His mind. And it's also the passage that contains what we call the unpardonable sin. And in this scene, Jesus is determined by His family to be insane, and he's declared by the religious leaders to be demon-possessed, and yet by the Holy Spirit and the disciples, those who have been touched by his ministry, he is is proven to be the Son of God. Another interesting tidbit, this this passage in Mark chapter 3, which is where we're going to be this morning, it's quite possible this is the passage that spurred C.S. Lewis to come up with his famous adage that Jesus was either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Have you ever heard that before? That was C.S. Lewis. Lewis uh, came up with this in response to people that were trying to paint Jesus as, a, as simply a nice or good teacher, but not God. We can follow Jesus' teaching, but we don't have to embrace His deity. And Lewis said that's not an option. That's, that's, an option. that's one option that's not possible. He could not be a good man. He could not be a moral man. He could not be a religious teacher because of one very important fact, and that is Jesus claimed to be God. And as soon as Jesus claimed to be God, the minute that that he did that, he eliminated himself from the category of good people, wise people, sensible people, 
Because those kind of people don't think they're God and they don't want you to think that they're God. And as soon as Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, it was no longer possible to simply designate him as a good teacher. Because sensible and good and wise teachers don't make such outrageous claims. C.S. Lewis said this, one of three things is true. Jesus is either a lunatic on the level of somebody who thinks he's a poached egg, or he is a liar at such a calculated and clever and extreme level as to probably be unequaled as a purveyor of deception, or he is Lord. But forget the patronizing nonsense that he's a good teacher. That is not an option. He's either crazy, he's a wicked pathological liar who purposely deceived people, or he's exactly who he said he was, God incarnate. Those are your only three options. Those are the only three options this morning. Is that possible? Is it possible that Jesus was crazy or corrupt? Well, all four Gospels are written as a testimony to prove that he was exactly who he said he was, God incarnate, and these passages that we're going to look at this morning is part of that testimony, part of that witness. So if you're not there, I want you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. And we're going to begin reading at the end of verse 19. This is a good illustration about how your the, the verses and natural breaks in your Bible are not always the best. They're helpful, but they're not inspired is what I'm trying to say. Because at the end of verse 19... You probably see, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, period. And this starts a new thought. And they went into a house. Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people, that's his family, heard about this, they went to lay hold of him. They went to seize him. They went to arrest him. For they said, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. So he called them to himself himself, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end or comes to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is the subject of eternal condemnation. Because they said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude, and a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he said to them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle of those who sat about him, and he said, Here are my mother." And my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister 
and mother. Fascinating passage. It's really a story within a story. End of verse 19 through verse 21 is this scene where Jesus' family comes to him. And then in verse 22 through 28 about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that's a, that's a scene where the scribes approach him. And then the story picks back up in verse 31 with that same family that came to lay hold of Jesus standing outside the house with the crowd, and they're calling to him. And he makes this statement about who is his true family. And after calling his disciples, Jesus returns to Capernaum and resumes ministry. That's what it means in verse 19. And they went into a house, likely Peter's house. And when he does, there's a great crowd, verse 20 tells us, a great multitude. You see the multitude again. And Jesus resumes ministry, and this great crowd gathers so many people that he cannot even eat or sleep. They're desiring him to heal them and to, to, to minister to them. And his family hears about it in Nazareth, and they come to rescue him, rescue him from himself. Then a delegation of legal scholars from Jerusalem come to weigh in on Jesus, on his ministry, on his miracles, and they conclude that he's possessed by an evil spirit. And he answers the scribes in verse 23 through 28 with that parable about a house divided against itself. And then he responds to his family in verses 31 through 33. And here is the outline, and I don't have a clicker, so you guys do it back there, okay? Three conclusions. I think the theme is getting Jesus right, because you have two that got him wrong and one group that gets him right. So the theme is getting Jesus right, but there are three conclusions drawn about Jesus Christ in this passage. First, they conclude he's a deranged lunatic. Second, they conclude he's a demon-possessed liar. And third, they conclude he is the devoted Son of God who is Lord. And the crowd didn't care who he was. They were seeking what he could do for them. His family thought he was deranged, and the scribes thought he was a false teacher who did miracles by the power of the devil. Those are some pretty strong accusations against Christ, aren't they? But the Holy Spirit and those changed by his power are sitting at his feet and know, they know, just like you know this morning, regardless of what people say, regardless of what CNN runs about Jesus, fact or fiction, you know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, don't you? You know that because He's changed your life. You know that because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that is within you. And that's exactly what these people are, are saying. Look at verse 19. Let's look at this first conclusion. Jesus is deranged. He's a deranged lunatic. And this is where Jesus' dedication offends his family. And you can see the scene. There's an enthusiastic multitude. Jesus is engrossed in ministry. And then there's an erroneous misconception. And Mark says they go into this house, and a multitude is gathered so much that he can't eat. And his own people, look at verse 21, when it says... His own people heard about this. They tried to seize him saying he, he's lost his, lost his mind. They knew who Jesus claimed to be, his family. This is a word for his family. They knew who Jesus claimed to be. They'd grown up around him, right? I mean, his brothers knew who he was. And now they hear the crowds and it was just too much for them. Chronologically, this happens after Isaiah 61. You remember when Jesus goes back to his hometown in Nazareth? 
is, has done some mighty works, goes into the synagogue. They give him the, the honor of reading that morning. The great Isaiah scroll is brought out. He reads the great Isaiah scroll, which is the prophecy about the Messiah. And he says, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears, declaring himself to be Messiah. They knew who Jesus claimed to be. And their conclusion was based on the hearing what was happening all up, all the way up to this point, and the fact that he's not caring for his own needs properly. He's not even eating bread. He was working and not eating, Tim Boyer, and was instead ministering to people. And they said he'd lost his mind. Look at what it says. He's out of his mind. It's a word that means psychic derangement. He's a lunatic. That's what it means. The word means he's outside of himself. He's no longer in control of his faculties. He's lost it. He's a nutcase. A lunatic, which is what this word means, is someone who has, whose mind doesn't work properly. One writer said it's like the guy, they describe Jesus like the guy who's laying in a mental hospital bed saying, I'm Napoleon, I'm Napoleon. And the next guy says to him, who told you that? And the man who says, I'm Napoleon, I'm Napoleon, said, God did. And the other man said, no, I didn't. (laughs) Clearly two individuals that have lost control of their faculties. I found something MacArthur said was interesting. He said, I'm always amazed that lunatics like to say that they're Jesus. I don't think I've ever heard a lunatic say that they're Buddha or Muhammad or some other god. (laughs) They all want to be Jesus. And it shouldn't be too hard to figure out why, because that's the one name that Satan desires to corrupt, because that's the one name given under heaven whereby a person might be saved. Verse 31, look at verse 31, because it shows that the family includes Mary and his brothers. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Did Mary think this about Jesus? Verse 31, his brothers and his mothers came standing outside, and they sent for him, they were calling I don't think Mary thought that at all. I mean, Mary knew that she was a virgin and knew that the Holy Spirit had given her a child. She, she had the angel that came to her and said, you're going to bear the Holy One of God. Evidently, she comes along. We're not told specifically why. I think the logical conclusion is she's a worried mother, maybe concerned about his health, maybe to protect him from his brothers. But his brothers clearly think that he's crazy. And their conclusion reveals an error, a great error. They mistook Jesus being dedicated to the works of God with madness. Why does brothers think that way? Well, their hearts for sure are unbelief. But practically, it was conviction. Jesus exposed their own hearts. And they either had to believe who he claimed to be or discredit the source. I mean, this is a clear case of shoot the messenger because you reject the message. I mean, they saw Jesus' life. They grew up with him as a perfect child. Think about this if you have a brother or a sister or you've ever been in in the class where there's a teacher's pet. I mean, Jesus was the perfect sibling. He never did wrong. He never spoke wrong. He always did what mom and dad did. And he's got these other brothers that are there that didn't, right? I mean, that would be pretty pretty hard. You know, yeah, there's Jesus again doing exactly what Mom said to do. You can hear him talking about it. 
And they'd heard about the works. They heard him read Isaiah 61. Are you kidding me? My brother, the Messiah? I mean, mom's told us the story, but we didn't have an angel come to us. And when they processed all of that, rather than submit and believe his testimony, they rejected it and said he must be crazy. And in their mind that Jesus has now gone over to the edge to the point that they need to lay hold of him. Look at verse 21. When his own people, his family, heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him. It's a word that's used for arrest. Whenever you want to, when the police come and take you into custody. They want to take Jesus into custody. And it tells us why. He's out of his mind. He's declaring himself to be God. He's claiming supernatural power. He's got the crowds flocking, religious establishments against him. He's going to get himself killed or bring even greater shame on the family. We've got to get him before he hurts himself or hurts somebody else. They're going to rescue him. And they may have meant well, but they were motivated by worldly care. They're seeing things from an earthly standpoint, weren't they? And Jesus saw eternity, and he concluded that his eternal work outweighed his earthly needs. I can remember the reaction when I left the business world. And in particular, whenever I used the money that I received from Anthem in the buyout, the buyout of my non-compete, to use that to go train for ministry rather than pay off my house. I, I can remember a good friend telling me that I was being irresponsible toward my family. I should use the money to pay off my house and not waste it. By the way, you ladies, have, has anyone ever, uh, those of you who are homemakers, anyone ever said to you, uh, you know, why do you why do you want to stay home with your kids and waste the education that you've that that you've attained? Have you ever heard that? To this friend of mine, this is an insane decision. And for people who don't know Christ, living with eternity in view doesn't seem logical to them. But it's perfectly logical to us because we know that there's life after life after the earth. I had another person tell me I'd lost my mind. I had people say it's a fad. He's, he's always been an all-or-nothing person. I had a friend say, why would you want to give 10% of your hard-earned money to the church? Listen, if you follow Christ, you're not going to be normal because normal is like the world. That's what they're saying. It's not a compliment to be normal if, if it's an unbeliever saying that or a person that doesn't have their eyes on Christ. You, you won't think the same way because you now have the mind of Christ. You, you will be all or nothing because seeing Christ, there is no fence riding. That doesn't mean you won't struggle with that. Living with eternity in view is illogical to an unsaved person, which is what's happening with these brothers, but for us to live as Christ and to die is, is gain. So what's the lesson? I think one of the lessons is the cost of following Christ may be rejection from people that are very dear to you. Those things hurt. These are my friends. These are, in some cases, some of my family. And if you, if you follow Christ and those reject you, Jesus said, count it all joy because they rejected me. And be careful if you're one of those that, that reject someone following Christ. Because resenting the right response of others 
may just be because it's revealing your own heart. I think the other lesson is beware listening to counsel that only sees the world as the governor. You might get well-meaning, but really, really bad counsel. Let's look at the second one. Verse 22. They say he is demon-possessed. He's a demon-possessed liar. Verse 22. It says, And the scribes came down from Jerusalem and said he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, and he answers. Jesus' declaration that he was God offended the religious leaders. His dedication to his work offends his family. And his declaration that he is God offends the religious leaders. Jesus is charged with being a demoniac. I mean, the very thing that he's undoing in other people, Jesus is accused of being a demoniac. And their charge is found in verse 22. Christ's response is found in verses 23 through 27. And the Holy Spirit's warning to them is found in verse 28 through 30, which we typically call the unpardonable sin. Because of that word that that says, never has forgiveness. If you do this, you'll never have forgiveness. Let's look at their charge in verse 22. It says, these scribes came down from Jerusalem. I want you to notice that these scribes are not from Capernaum. They're not from around there. They have come down from Jerusalem. And Jesus has already offended the local leaders there. We've been walking through that, the Sabbath healings and otherwise. And they, they set out to destroy him at the end of, of the, the last dust-up he has with them. And they set out to destroy him. And now they've called in the big guns. These are the guys from the temple that made the journey up to Capernaum. And their purpose is to convince others that Jesus was a fraud and to diminish his influence. Because they're obviously very concerned that this crowd is there. The family's concerned that the crowd is there uh, keeping Jesus from caring for himself. The religious leaders are concerned that the crowd is coming to listen to Jesus because they're losing influence. It's like bringing in an expert witness to discredit the opposition. That's basically what they're doing. The scribes from Jerusalem were legal specialists. And it also shows that already, right now in Jesus' ministry, He's attracted the attention of Jerusalem. He hasn't just attracted the attention of people or the leaders in Capernaum. His attention, He's got the, he's got the attention of, of the temple. And there's a special delegation that was part of the Sanhedrin that was sent out to evaluate miracles and to declare whether they were legitimate or not. And if they were... They would conclude that they were legitimate, then Jesus would be sanctioned or blessed by these religious leaders, by this special delegation, which, of course, came at the price of being under their authority. It was the way that they controlled the system. If, on the other hand, the preacher or the miracle worker refused to submit to their authority, then they would declare his miracles false and him an apostate, and they would do that publicly They would have that announced in the synagogue, and they would make sure that everyone knew 
that the, the ruling council in Jerusalem had declared, whoever they are listening to, name the person that they are considered a false teacher and they're apostate. And beyond that, if, if, if a person's uh, influence got so significant in a specific area, that delegation had the authority to declare an entire town or an entire city a seduced city. So, I mean, they're so worried that Capernaum is going to go after Jesus and he's, he's ministering all around Galilee and the crowds are following him. They want to come and mitigate his influence. They want to take away his influence and they also want to warn Capernaum that if you continue to house this man, you continue to prop him up, bad things may happen to you. You could be declared a seduced city and that would have massive ramifications. Like close the synagogue. The Catholic Church has done this for decades in third world countries. When there is such a false gospel that the only way that you can be saved is through getting grace, through taking the mass. The way that they would control people is they would lock the doors of the church and refuse mass to people. And in refusing of mass, people, because they had been taught wrongly, believed that they couldn't go to heaven. And so the people in a town would submit and they would open the doors and they would serve the Mass again. False teachers always use coercion and control and manipulation. And that's what you find these people doing here. Of course, Jesus had no intention of submitting to this group of people or the Sanhedrin because he knew they were corrupt. I mean, in fact, he came to speak against their false religion. They were the ones that were apostate. And so they draw their conclusion in verse 22, after their investigation. And they bring two separate accusations against Jesus. First, they say Jesus himself is demon-possessed. Look at verse 22. They say, he has Beelzebub. He has Beelzebub. He's possessed by a demon. Second accusation, because they couldn't deny the miracles that he had performed... They then attributed what Jesus had accomplished to the prince of demons. He's possessed, and yes, we know that he's done these things. The guy that was demon-possessed is right there, and now he's healed. We can't deny that. So yes, it was powerful. Yes, it was a work, but it was an evil work. That power came by Satan. And so they conclude Jesus' work was unlawful and declare him in the same category as a sorcerer, as someone who's possessed by an unclean spirit. And that's significant, because according to the law, that was somebody was, was worthy of death. It's possible that this is even part of the setup. If you go back to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, at the very end of that last confrontation with the leaders in Capernaum, it says that they intended to destroy Jesus. They intend to kill him. And this may be part of the plot bring the heavy guns in from Jerusalem to declare him a false teacher and a sorcerer, not only to mitigate his influence, but to set up the cross that's going to come later. Let me tell you two things. If people can't deny what God has done in you, they'll try to attribute it to something else in order to explain it away. You are the one that has your testimony. People can argue with you about the Bible. People can argue with you about the facts of the Bible. But they can't argue with you about your changed life. 
And so the only thing that they can do... Now, you're, the Bible has more authority than your changed life, but your life is changed because of the authority of the Bible. And they can't argue with you. It's just like somebody who comes to, comes to me that may be wrong, and so I believe God's told me to do this. And it's not something that's specifically forbidden in Scripture. What am I going to say to them? No, God didn't tell you to do that. Now, if I could find a passage in the Bible, I can say, well, that might not have been the Lord, because right here, God says this. But if it's subjective, if it's, you know, to take this job rather than that job, where God gives you freedom and they believe that the Lord's told them, I can't argue with that. Someone can't argue with you what Jesus has done in your life. So you know what they'll try to do? They'll try to explain it away. Because your life will then convict them. They'll say you've been changed, sure, but you're a religious fanatic. Did you know there's an entire section in the psychiatric diagnosis manual called the DSM-5? It's DSM-5 because there's been five revisions because they keep changing it because it doesn't really have a whole lot of authority. And in that section, it's titled Religious and Spiritual Problems. There's an entire chapter called Spiritual and Religious Problems. And the diagnosis in there are to explain the impact that Jesus has had on your life away. It's spiritual diagnosis of things from a humanistic, natural standpoint for why we love Jesus and who they don't believe is real in their minds. And ultimately... It's not to explain anything that happened in you away, because you're not going to believe it. You know what happened to you. It's to explain away their conviction and their guilt and the reality of God and hell. So if people deny what God has done in you, they can't deny what God's done in you. They'll try to explain it away. Let me tell you something else. If your changed life becomes such a threat to the devil that he'll have people, maybe even experts, speak against you. If that happens, don't be sad. Rejoice. I can remember getting a, a knock on my door in Winfield, West Virginia. I go to the door. We had this, uh, you know, had like a glass door and then a regular door that had a window about, it's like half, you know. And there was like a shear in it. I can remember coming up to the shear and I could look through and there, 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 there are two guys out there and I opened the door and I opened the door. It's, you know, elder such and such and elder whatever from the, from the Mormon church. And they wanted to share with me this new truth from the Book of Mormon. And I said to them, sure, as long as I can ask a question when you're done. Now, I'm not advocating this to you if you don't know about Mormonism you don't know how to defend against their, their garbage, then just thank them and move them on, give them a gospel track, tell them that you're a Bible believer. But I said, sure, as long as I can ask a question when you're done. They gladly accepted. And so they shared their testimony, which happened to be about how they used to be Baptist. They're not dumb. They send the Baptists to the Baptist areas. But they'd heard the claims of the Book of Mormon and... Uh, this new revelation that was given after the apostles by the angel Moroni who appeared to Joseph Smith. And the angel showed Joseph Smith how the, how the church had the gospel all wrong and the angel gave him the Book of Mormon to correct it. And as part of their testimony, they said, I mean, we went to church, we grew up in Sunday school, yada, yada. 
And this man witnessed to us and told us to empty our minds and pray and ask God if what we believed was all wrong. And if so, then he would let us know in our hearts. So they said they prayed and they got this warm sense of confirmation that what they believed was all wrong and so they became Mormons. Never mind the Bible never tells you to empty your mind. It tells you to fill it with truth. And never mind that you can get a warm feeling from hot sauce or bad potato salad. And so after they were done, I say, okay, here's, here's my question. Do you have a Bible? And they said, oh, yes. Hold it up. A King James Bible. You know, they're in West Virginia. So they, there's not dumb. I said, good. Open up to the book of Galatians, chapter 1. And I said, follow along with me as I read. So they were opening up their Bible, they are flipping through, and they got it there. I started to read. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace be to you in peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. And they said, Amen. I kept reading. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. And they said, Amen. And then I read, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the gospel of grace unto another gospel. And I paused and they said nothing. Which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, than which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, than that you have received, let him be accursed. And they were silent, so I said, Amen. <laughs> then I said, here's my question. How could the angel Moroni give Paul, give Joseph another gospel whenever God says that it's not another gospel, but a lie, and anyone who believes it or preaches it is damned? And they said, well, we can see that you're not open to listening, so we'll move on. It is. And I wanted to keep them there. So I said, well, tell me where you came from. And they said, well, we came from Braxton County, West Virginia. That's where we were before. Of course, they have no idea that that's where my family's from. It's a true story. And one of the men said, we had a bad experience there, so we moved down here to Kanawha County. And there was a pastor there who's not a godly man, and... And he told many people in the county not to listen to us. And we'd go door to door and they wouldn't let us in. I mean, we come to the door and they say, we've heard about you, we don't want to hear it, you move on. I said, really? That's interesting. What was the pastor's name? And he said, Mark Stump, and he is not an honorable man. I started smiling. I said, that's interesting. My family's from Braxton County and that's my mother's pastor. And I actually know he is a godly man. And he's the man who believes the Bible. And they just turned and walked away. 
So what's the point? I called Master, uh, Pastor Stump and told him, if Satan has his minions four counties away speaking evil about you by name, you must have done something right. If you've been so effective in fighting a false gospel that men speak evil against you, don't be downtrodden. Rejoice. And if your life is changed so much that it's a threat to the devil where he has people tear you down because you're doing so much damage to the worldly kingdom, way to go. Keep it up. Don't give up. Don't back up. Cast yourself with the mercies of God. Don't be obnoxious, don't be a jerk, but don't worry if people speak evil of you because they spoke evil of Jesus. His own family said that he was crazy because he was dedicated to the work of God and the religious leaders said that everything that he did that they couldn't deny happened by the work of Satan. But if your life is so normal, and lacks so little salt that the world can't even tell that Christ is in you, you probably need to do some evaluation and probably some repenting. Jesus is Lord, or He's not in the right place. It's not possible to only take part of Him, or part of what He said, because He claimed to be God. And those who know Him to be God, He says, follow me, and we follow Him. And you'll have to come back tonight and hear the rest. You should bow your heads.